Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Doubler's Podcast. I'm Erin Paul, and this week I am recording an interview with the wonderful Beth Lano. Beth is a horn player and an advertising and radio uh, professional who is currently based in Las Vegas and is the Director of Marketing and Communications for the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Hi, Beth. Welcome. Hi, Erin. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. How are you doing? I, I'm fine. A little correction. I'm Director of Marketing and Public Relations for the UNLV School of Music. Oh, yes. So, that is an important yes. detail. Yes, yes. Because um, uh, if if I were uh, Director of Communications for the university, that would be a gigantic pay bump. Right. <laughs> You're like, excuse me, um, <laughs> I would like some more money. Yes. yes. Thank you. Thanks for Thanks for catching that. Um, which is even more relevant to your career as a musician to be in that position for the school of music specifically. So I'm, I'm glad, glad we caught that. Um, so just to get started, um, could you, could you share a little bit about who you are and where you're at right now and sort of what you've been up to lately? Well, like, as you said, I'm Beth Lano and I'm, I'm a horn player in Las Vegas. I've been here for 38 years. I've been here for a really long time. And um, uh, I was brought to town by Wayne Newton. So I have the quintessential coming to Las Vegas story. Wayne Newton picked me out of an orchestra in Indianapolis where I was working with my best friend at the time, still best friend, the harpist Kim Glennie. And we came out here all those years ago. I spent about four years with him on the road and, and turned that into a freelance career and a doubler's career as well because I, I do a lot of different stuff. Currently, I'm working all of my jobs out of my home in Las Vegas and um, and enjoying it. I'm I'm still I'm I'm not doing obviously as much work as a freelance musician, but I've bumped up my work as a as a teacher. I have about thirteen or fourteen private students. I also wow. work as a paraprofessional for the Las Vegas Academy for the Arts. And so I work with all the horn students there. We do all of that virtually. Um, uh, obviously, marketing and public relations for the School of Music at UNLV, which I can do completely remotely. Um, and uh, I'm working as a as a voice actor. I I do a lot of you know a lot of commercials for a lot of different things, from car dealerships to food banks to um, uh, just this year. One of one of my side hustles was. Uh, contacting the people at the Lincoln Project and um, doing some advertising for the Lincoln Project. Oh, cool. During, during the campaign, actually um, got to voice the spot that, that the first spot that they did that um, basically introduced Joe Biden at the beginning of the Democratic Convention. So, Oh, wow. I didn't know yeah. that. That's yeah. so cool. Yeah, it was really fun. So I'm, I'm, I'm doing a lot of things. I'm wearing a lot of hats and enjoying every minute of it. That is very cool. I did not know that about the Lincoln Project spot. I'm going to have to go look that up. <laughs> it's called Biden Dad. Biden and Dad. And it, it was released um, mid-August. Um, so you can you can find it on the Lincoln Project's YouTube channel. Cool. Yeah, I've seen a lot of their stuff. It was some really some really cool stuff. Um, yeah, that's, that's such a cool story. So, so can you describe a little bit more about that experience of, of being in Indiana, being in Indiana and Indianapolis and, and what that was like, where, what were you doing when Wayne Newton picked you up out of the orchestra? 
Well, um, I had just finished up at Indiana University Bloomington and uh, and had moved there in January of 1982. And this was August of 1982. Where I lived was basically in Indianapolis, was behind the campus of Butler University. And on the edge of that campus was this outdoor summer theater. I don't know if it still exists, but it was called the Starlight Music Theater. Mm. And like many, you know, it was it, it, for, for us traveling road musicians, we know that there's, there's a circuit. So right. like there's, there's also a Starlight in St. Louis, I believe there, but, but it's just one of those places where they would have acts that came in for, um, for a week at a time, things like that. Or shows that that summer I played um, Showboat, um, a touring a national touring company of Showboat, which was great fun. Um, I played Shirley Jones, who was the mom on the Partridge Family. Oh wow! Um, and um, and Wayne was the last was the last week of the Starlight Summer season, and he came came through town, and from the first or second day, his his book, the way it was set up was he had sort of a skeleton of a show. Mm-hmm. And so that show would be in one book next to or on your music stand next to your chair was a book about that thick that had about 500 pieces of music, supposedly in alphabetical order, many of which started with horn solos oh God. And, harp, and harp solos. Yeah. So, so you had to, you had to be really quick. We had, you know, as, as with many shows like that, you have basically one rehearsal and then opening it's opening night. Right. So we had a rather long rehearsal that afternoon. And sure enough, you know, they, they said, we'll never play the same, the same show twice. And they mm-hmm. certainly didn't. And they, um, they kept calling up tunes that had horn solos. So I got some attention there by the second or third night. They, the piano player would start playing something and I knew what the tune was before they had a chance to call it out. So I could either reach down and grab the music or I could just play it from memory. That's somewhat of a photographic memory. And so Wayne really liked that. And apparently where they, where they had been touring that summer, they had trouble with horn players and harpists because oh, wow. there were people, because of the way that is, you know, a lot of people don't really recognize what those tunes are. Right. And so it the tune is nearly over by the time they get down into that that big thick alphabetical book and pull it out. So right. I was quick. I was quick and I could play the horn. I got the job and, and they Wayne asked Kim and I uh the next to the last night that they were in town invited us to uh the hotel where they were staying and we we met in a ballroom at this hotel and they he offered us the job. Um, which is, this is a very condensed version of how that whole night went because right. the, the, mu- the music director didn't know that we were being hired and it was, oh wow yeah, it was kind of a, it was kind of a strange situation, but 10 days later we were out here through with, with a few, um, a few bumps along the way. Um, but we, we were out here and, you know, stayed on the road with him for four or five years and, wow and then, you know. And then left after that. So that's how I got here. Right. That is so cool. What a story. <laughs> you were fast. You were really good at the alphabet. And you had a photographic memory. And that got you the game. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah it's funny. It. It's funny how these things, I mean, the horn playing being a given, of course. It's funny how these these small things that, you know, no one in music school would ever be like, well, you better get good at sorting through 500 things of music because that's going to be the thing that gets you the gig. Well, but it's true. 
But it's 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 true that and flexibility. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, you have to be able to adapt to so many different styles of music, which is certainly what that particular book was. There were so many different styles of music that you had to be good at. You those are things that they don't teach you in music school. But that also, you know, in a way prepared me to be flexible musically also prepared me to be flexible in my life with, you know, be flexible and be open. And, you know, if you don't know how to do something, learn it as fast as you can. And, 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 but, but have that flexibility so you can make yourself as employable as possible. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Cause those, that versatility can be so useful. Yeah. So, so what brought you, so after you went out on tour, of course, and you're in Vegas, um, what led you into the field of, of public relations and marketing? Um, public relations and marketing came to me. I had, I was off the road from traveling with Wayne and I had gotten a job at Valley's Jubilee. Um, the, the, the uh, production show that had been here for ever. Mm. Um, and uh, that show really quickly about that show, that show was at Bally's obviously in Bally's, Bally's Las Vegas. Right. The band was in the basement and, playing into microphones and the conductor conducted from a TV monitor. And so, yeah, so it was the, it was, it was a very bad precedent because the band was invisible. It was actually kind of cool though, because if you were a a partier, which I was at the time and you, and you um, slept up until 45 minutes before the show and you wanted to show up in your, what you'd slept in, you know, (laughs) you could just walk in and nobody would care. Right. But anyway, um, um, the, the, the hotels, there was a gigantic labor dispute here in 1989, a big, big labor strike when the hotels decided they didn't want, um, they didn't, they didn't want to have guarantees for musicians. They wanted to, Mm. they, they basically, because in this town back then there were, there were like at my show, I think there were, there were, 18 musicians and a, and a leader and we were guaranteed work, you know, 52 weeks a year. There oh, wow. were star policy showrooms here um, that had 21 guaranteed sidemen salaries plus the leader. And obviously when these, these star policy acts, these headliners came through town, they weren't necessarily using 21 people. So it was right. a little bit of, you know, a little bit of overkill, but those were the, that's the way things had always been here. Actually, they'd, they'd been even more pro-musician. So in 1989, what we called the big five hotels, Hilton, Bally's, the Flamingo Hilton, which was different, Caesars. There, there, were, there were five different ownership groups reflected. Tropicana was one as well. Mm-hmm. They decided that they were going to, they locked out the people at the Tropicana. And then, they, and then everybody else sort of started to follow suit. So in June of 1989, I would finish my second show at Jubilee and um, I'd go out on the picket line at the Tropicana, which was the first hotel to be locked out. I started, I would get off of the picket line and I'd go back to my condo and I'd sit down with my little word processing typewriter and I started writing the story. Then I started pitching the story and I pitched the story to some media outlets. I mean, we we were already getting attention in the papers locally, but we started... I started pitching the story nationally, started picking up some, some 
publicity for them. I put together a PR packet. I have no idea how I knew how to do this, but I did know how to write. You know, right. I, I, I've been a writer since I was a kid. And I walked it in a few weeks later to the desk of the president of the musicians union in Las Vegas, Mark Massagli. And I said, I want to be your public relations director. And I was hired. Wow. It was not for, for not very much money, but and I was an hourly employee, but that, that was, that was how I got my feet wet in public relations and crisis management right off the bat. Wow. Yeah. That's like, that's a deep end to jump into right in the middle yeah. of a big labor dispute like that. Yeah. And, yeah. and to, to just instinctively know how to call a press conference, how to write a press release. That wasn't a big deal. How to call a press, organize and call a press conference, how to handle making statements to the press, how to, uh, how to do reputation management and make sure that your client, in this case, the musicians union, which I had a vested interest in, which is probably unethical, but, but <laughs> right. at the same time, but at the, it wasn't unethical, uh, right, right. but it was, but, but at the same time, you know, being able to, to handle all this stuff, be on call 24 hours a day. I lived close to the musicians union. So reporters would call me at all hours, you know, they'd call me at three o'clock in the morning and say, we, we need a, we need to stand up for you because we want to air it on the, on the morning side news. So, oh, wow. So yeah, you did that. It was just, it was, it was a pretty cool thing, you know? And then yeah. a, a couple of months later, my job at Bally's um, was also, you know, that was also gone. So, mm. so that was, and that, that, that sucked because I had, uh, I had been the first uh, full-time uh employee woman employee at, at, in that band. Oh, and wow. I, I had already, I had also learned the book and I, I was one of the assistant conductors. Oh, so man. I was really looking forward to, you know, sort of growing my conducting career out of that, but yeah. it was not meant, it was not meant to be. Oh, wow. Wow. That's amazing. I didn't realize that you were the first, um, that you were the first woman in the band there. That's yeah. Very there were cool. other women who played in the band, but I was the first one to be hired full time. Right. The first one who like had the chair. Yeah. Wow. That's really cool. What yeah. a story. <laughs> the eighties, man. <laughs> I know. Right. Right. Oh my God. I've heard they were great. <laughs> no, but I that's, a, they were too. right. But that's a very cool, um, like that's a big thing to jump into is to just to go straight. And I mean, that is a crisis among crises. Um, yeah. When you were when you were adjusting to that role and kind of jumping in, did you find that um, your skills as a performer helped you perform in press conferences and things like that? Did those things translate? Without without a doubt, yeah, without a doubt. That, that's yeah they they helped me and they helped me in so many ways. And I've always said that um, that that my training as a musician, my education as a musician, my continuing education as a musician helps me in every single thing that I do. I mean, it, it helps me as a voice talent, as a voice talent, you know, people throw scripts in front of me all the time and they're like, you know, you interpret these things like it's a piece of music. You're, you're, you're talking phrases. You're not just speaking words. Yeah. You, you read in phrases and it's like, that's because that's what we're trained to do. Right. Yeah. Cause it's the same. I mean, a phrase in music is the same as a comma in a sentence. It's, there's a lot of parallels there. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's really neat. So, so you've mentioned a couple of times that you are also active as a voice talent. When did that piece of your now tripling <laughs> come into play? 
Um, I knew I wanted to do it when I was still in Indianapolis. Didn't really have time to hone that because I was in Indianapolis for a relatively short period of time after Mm. college. So when I came out here, I, I did some, I actually did some voice work during the musician strike and just sort of started building that from there. And by, you know, four or five, four or five years later, just doing little piecemeal things here and there, I was, I was doing a lot of voice work. So I did a lot of radio and TV stuff. Didn't really get into narration or any national stuff until the early 2000s. And, and I've done all of it without an agent. I just basically hustle myself. Not that I'm not looking for an agent because I would like to find one, but it's, it's, it's not on my priority list right now. I'm doing fine with it. And I don't want, I don't want that to be my full-time job. Yeah. 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 And that field, I mean, having an agent just like in music, I'm sure means that someone else gets a piece of whatever it is that you do. Yeah. But, um, but that's, how did you, um, how did you find your way in, um, without the benefit of, of an agent at that point? I, uh, I took some of these little pieces of, you know, these, these short little unimportant, seemingly unimportant spots that I did. Mm-hmm. I put them together with the help of a, of a friend of mine who owned a recording studio and, and I had done some work for him, mm. put it on a cassette tape, made a bunch of copies and I walked it around to every ad agency in town and waited until they listened to it. It was wow. like, I'm not just dropping this off. I'd like to meet with them. I had the names, which is no small feat back then because this is before computer you know, there were computers, obviously, I'm not that old, but, (laughs) but this was before everybody had had computers. And, you know, we weren't Googling, right, pre LinkedIn, looking, looking through phone books. And, and, and I knew some of these people peripherally from, from being a PR person. I mean, I, you know, and I had some of my media friends who said, Hey, this is somebody in an ad agency that, that, uh, that I've worked, worked for worked with before. Yeah. So, so I just, I, I picked it up and there, there are a couple of people that I took my tape to that I still work, work for from time to time, a couple of wow. clients, one in particular. So it, yeah. So wow. it's, it was just, you know, just pounding the pavement. Yeah. 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 And to maintain those relationships over such a long period of time, I'm sure also, you know, you've put effort into maintaining that connection and, yeah, nurturing that relationship to continue for that long. Yeah. I'm sure is its own. I mean, that's that's its own thing too to maintain those connections, especially and, now because you can just go. I mean, I'm sure I I I mean, I didn't I have never done any voice work in a serious sense, but I worked at a recording studio where I part of my job was finding um different talents for different spots. And I just used like a website, Voices123 One, or something two, three. like that. Yeah. And it was, yeah. you know, everything was in the search filter and you just punch things in. And I'm sure, you know, I'm sure I don't really remember from the time, but I'm sure a lot of folks may have been cheaper than through maybe other traditional ways. So so getting through that shift in technology too, maintaining those relationships and those connections, that's, yeah. I'm sure it was, wasn't easy. I, it wasn't, but, but it, it, it was interesting too, because, you know, yeah, you nurture those relationships, but just, just as, as with life in general, you also, it also helps you filter out the relationships that, you know, these are people that I, I really don't want to align myself with. And not mm-hmm. that I have like so much work that I'm, 
independently wealthy and can afford to turn stuff down. But right. like you then, but you do get to the point where, where you realize what's not working for you. Like, you know, there are, there were a couple of clients that I'd had in the past who, who for whatever reason, ethically, politically, even mm-hmm. that I couldn't, I couldn't work. I could not work with them. And it wasn't, yeah. there, there was no acrimony or anything. It was just like, yeah, I'm just not gonna, not going to nurture anymore. And right. those, those things kind of take care of themselves. So, yeah. So it's, it's, it's pretty interesting though. It's pretty interesting. how. Yeah. That. And I'm sure over time, having your, having your, um, different talents being utilized in different, in so many different arenas, um, allowing like an ebb and flow in each place and having that scale of scope, I guess, is probably helpful also for allowing you space to make those choices and say like, okay, I can think about this now for a little while longer and I can kind of let this right. one go. And yeah, having that variety. I'm well, sure. When was- I, I did, I did, um, I was a radio personality for many years and mm. I did, um, I started out in news radio and then went to basically straight from news radio to morning radio. I was like a wacky morning show host from 1998 to 2007. And so, so that with that schedule, I mean, talk about ebb and flow. I'd never, ever in any of this, let my music go Mm. because it was like, that's who I am. That's, that's what I do. But, but having the, having to balance that, um, that just ridiculous morning radio schedule where you're, you're up at two 30 or three and you're, and then, and you're on at five, but I also had the voice track record a show that aired on the sister station overnight. So I had to do that every day when I went in. So I'd have to record that before I went on, do my show, get off the air, go uh, book guests for the coming weeks write up show prep and, and do all of that stuff, go home, grab something to eat, sleep for three hours, get up, do show prep, watch TV, practice a little bit, um, go back to bed for about three hours and then do it again. So that was, that was the five day a week schedule. So you, you end up having to, having to rebalance everything, but there were times when, um, when, you know, and, and, and also juggling, um, you know, juggling the other careers too, because the the voice career was, I was actually in more demand while I was doing morning radio in many ways. I mean, because people were like, Oh yeah, we want her because she's, she's Beth from the radio. So, so, you know, just finding, finding ways to balance that and then, you know, go, go play a show or something at night, which is sort of during my bedtime. Right. So there were many nights when, when you just didn't sleep. You know, yeah. If you, if you do a show for a week, you're, you're basically living on three, three or four hours of sleep. Wow. Um, yeah. Cause uh, that time period through 2007, does that overlap phantom? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was beginning, the beginning of phantom. And I remember one time not balancing very well and going in cause I was subbing on phantom when it first came, came to town mm-hmm. cause I was still doing morning radio. And I actually, I quit radio when, when spam a lot came to town. Oh. I was, I was miserable by that time. And it was like, uh, they called me and said, Hey, uh, Steve, Wynn went to the previews, the show was already almost open. Steve oh, wow. Wynn went to previews and he said, um, this is a show about Camelot. Where's my French horn. Oh, wow. And so the contractor called up and he says, uh, you want to do spam a lot? And I said, Oh yeah, I want to do spam a lot. And I wrote up my resignation letter and took it 
cook it down. But I'd already been subbing in Phantom, and um, there there were a couple of times where I, I I'd, I'd go in and sub, and my chops felt terrible, and I would just do enough practicing to to just maintain. Mm-hmm. But there was one period of time when I, I had subbed at Phantom. Somebody got sick three months later. I was going through a really busy, busy time. And I said, yeah, I'll sub, but I'm not going to promise anything because I really haven't been practicing much. And I get in there and I, I I don't think Sandra Donatelle was playing lead at the time. And she mm-hmm. said, she said, you sounded great. I said, felt awful. Right. She, she said, well, when, how much have you been practicing? And I said, I haven't been. And she says, when was the last time you played? And I said, when was the last time I subbed here? And it had been a couple of months. Oh, wow. So that's, that's, you know, air. Thank God for air. Right. Air and air and pucker, because that Mm -hmm. covers a multitude of sins. Really? I know. Right. Yeah. yeah. That and thank God for vacation jobs. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Wow. Yeah, that's a lot to balance. I mean, that kind of schedule with the morning radio show. I mean, that must have been. You are a far sturdier person than me. <laughs> I, there, there is no way in hell that I could do that now. But, um, but you know, it was it was a great job. Yeah, I'll, I'll accept for probably about the last year and a half of it was really, really good. I got to see a lot of the world. I got to, you know. I got to do a lot of really cool things. Yeah. So that's very cool. Did you travel for, for that job um, outside of the city? Yeah. They, they um, two years in a row, they sent, they sent my partner and I, I had like four different partners, but it was, Mm -hmm. I was the constant, but I had four different partners, but my favorite partner, Rick, Rick Kelly, they sent Rick and I two summers in a row to Boston to the Sam Adams brewery to broadcast for a week at Sam Adams brewery. Oh, wow. And and the only thing that we, we had to promise to do was drink their beer during our show and talk about it. So I, I discovered, I don't drink at all anymore, but I discovered uh, I had a fondness for Sam Adams cherry wheat beer, which I found to be quite a suitable breakfast beer. Ah, yes. And you were just doing your job, just doing my job, just doing your job. So we went to went to Boston. They uh, they took us to um, they did these these radio sales trips. So they would they would take their their biggest purchasers, the biggest buyers, media time buyers. Um, so our clients would come come with us, and then they take a couple of the on air talent in order to you know to basically entertain and you know sweeten the pot a little bit. So got to go to Cancun and do that, and then one oh, year. Wow. Um, one year they they did another sales trip like that, and I got to go to Fiji for ten days. That is awesome. Yeah, so wow. it was a, it was a it was a pretty cool it was a pretty cool job. That's very cool. That yeah. is very cool. Yeah, wow, that is so. I I love these stories. <laughs> it's so cool to hear <laughs> about this stuff because it's so it's such a variety. You know, it's it's such a variety of of things that you've done all within like the scope of you know, marketing, communications, radio, all of these things, but like such a wide variety of experiences and, uh, and different places that you've gone. That's very cool. I've been really, really fortunate. Yeah. That's, it's a very cool, very cool career. Yeah. <laughs> Tripling, quadrupling, you know, <laughs> uh, um, that is awesome. And so it sounds, it sounds like, I mean, we've talked a little bit about the the balance of, 
of how there's an ebb and flow between different times in life and how, you know, when you're doing the radio show, obviously you were not on a heavy practice schedule so much as a survival schedule. Um, So now, you know, now, especially now that, you know, everybody's life has probably slowed down a lot more than maybe they would, they would prefer. Um, As you're working from home and doing everything remotely, are you finding, how do you find that that balance compares to, you know, previous balances that you've achieved in these different times in life? Well, it's, so, so the balance has obviously had to shift because I don't, I'm not going out to do playing gigs at night, but, um, so I've had to amp up my teaching. So I'm doing all that teaching now, which is great. Um, and so what I do, actually, I feel like I'm busier than I was before everything shut down. Yeah. Great. Which is great because from a mental health standpoint, it's, it's really important not to be sitting around watching TV and doom scrolling, you know, (laughs) because it's so easy to do. Oh yeah. Um, But from a balance perspective, it's been really interesting because um, as far as my approach to the horn, I've been, um, and this dovetails with teaching so well, I've been going back to basics and Mm -hmm. um, I, I had injured myself playing a show a year ago, a little bit more than a year ago, mm-hmm. just, just playing wrong and, and, uh, and long. It was, it was Anastasia. I don't know if you've ever played that book. I haven't, but my partner is also a horn player and he played Anastasia. And I heard that it was a very difficult book. There's so much, um, there's just so much blowing. There's not enough time to take the horn off your face and there's yeah. a lot of muted playing and you, in you feel like you're not really being heard. So you tend to overblow the mute. Yeah. So that really hurt. That really hurt my face. And then after that, I had to do, um, I had to do, I got to do, um, <laughs> I had two weeks off and then I did three weeks of wicked and wicked was where I started to heal. Wicked was great, but, yeah. but I never really took enough time off the horn to allow my face to heal. So yeah. since the shutdown, it's like, you know what, I'm going to use this as a time to rebuild my chops. So you know, I'm, I'm, I'm practicing all kinds of stuff, but I'm spending so much more time on long tones and, and, you know, and, and flexibility exercises and scales and really soft playing and not so much loud playing. And, right. um, uh, a, a concept that I have that I do with my students that I call horn yoga and, and horn and horn yoga is, is, it's basically, it's just arpeggios, but it's getting the, it's getting the student and therefore my uh, head in the right space where everything's relaxed and you're, you're, you're forming your embouchure and you do, you start everything off with three deep breaths and you center. And it's really interesting with this virtual teaching. I, I absolutely love virtual teaching. I really do. Yeah. It's, it's really great because there are things that you can see in a, in a student's embouchure or posture that you, if, if you looked at them like that, you know, I teach during normal times, I teach in my, in my living room. Right. But if I, if I was looking at my student like this, it would be like, it, that would be really freaking creepy. Right. You know, but, but right. this way I'm, I'm catching little subtleties in, in people's embouchures and, and in their posture and how they're breathing and all that stuff. And it's like, and this is great. So I do this horn yoga and the way we do it is, you know, you one, three, five, three, four, 
135, right? So you mm-hmm. just keep going up. It's just expanding arpeggios and we play them back and forth. So this fits right into to like the stuff that I'm already doing to practice. This sort of adds to it and it 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 gives me a chance to focus in on the student, focus in on my own sound production and yeah. air and all of that core in, engagement and all that stuff. So I, you know, it's just like I'll, I'll teach and then I go practice and I go do some stuff for UNLV and then I'll either go into my my master bedroom closet and record a, a you know, record a commercial or an audition or something mm. like that or or go to a studio. I mean, it's it's actually the balance. The balance is is pretty darn good right now. Knock wood. So, yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's it way sounds- better than it was. Right. Yeah. I mean, the convenience of not having to go anywhere to do any of these things, I'm sure cuts down on the length of the days. Cause I yeah. know that I've, I know that that's what I've experienced where, cause I have a, I have a full-time job in tech and that job was always remote. And so I was able to take it with me, but even still, I mean, the time that you spend getting somewhere, you can't be yes. on your computer and drive a car at the same time. It's illegal. So there are limits on what you can do, but cutting down on all of that, you know, even though you feel I, what I've experienced is that even though I feel busier, I'm doing more things. Um, the fact that I don't have to go anywhere is kind there's kind of a benefit to it because it's it, just that transportation piece. I mean, oh, getting yeah. around Las Vegas was a little bit easier than getting around New York, but. Oh, much, much easier, much but still. easier, but, but still, and I, but I bet, I mean, the other day I was, I was getting ready to, what was I doing? Oh, I was getting ready to do a live stream. I do social media for a group in town here mm-hmm. that, that does these live stream broadcasts and, and it was 10 minutes before their downbeat. And I was like, oh, it's trash night. I need to, I, so, I mean, it's like. It's like I, I gathered up all the trash in the house and put it out on the curb in the in the bins and put it out on the curb. And I, I went in to sit down. I turned on the computer and I'm going, damn, I was just so super productive. Right. If I had to get in my car and go go do this, um, this would be you're you're adding on not only the commute, but the but the but the doing your hair and your makeup and dressing and all of that. Right. stuff. It's like. You know, this is there. There is a lot, a lot to be uh, appreciated about this sort of lifestyle, and I do wonder how this is going to change things. Like, yeah, is it safe to go out? I think there are a lot of things that that used to require a commute that aren't going to necessarily have to. We have meetings. Right. Um, we have like we have a Friday social meeting um, with some people in the College of Fine Arts at UNLV. That that each each of us really looks forward to, and we've already been talking about like you know when once it's safe to to hang out, are we going to do that or are we going to are we going to continue this online thing? Because we all like the convenience of being able to to not only not have to drive someplace, but also the Zoom format yeah. is actually pretty nice because you can have actual conversations without the room noise and all that stuff. And no, there's no substitute for person to person contact and and that electricity of the atmosphere and everything but what we're thinking of is that we're going to maybe meet once a month but the other three fridays of the month we're going to keep doing our zoom meetings yeah yeah i mean there's it's it's tough to beat in as far as logistics go and yeah i think i think you're right i think a lot of people have um because when i started my job uh 
last April, so April 2019, um, you know, working remotely had become more common over the years, um, but it was still, I was already in Zoom world. And then all of a sudden in March of this year, everyone joined me and suddenly knew what the heck I was talking about when I was like, oh yeah, well, I just talked to my coworkers on Slack and then we get on Zoom and we need to. And everyone's like, oh, we know what those things are now. Yeah. Right. And that's so wild. Yeah. It's really bizarre. But I think now that like, you know, the secret's out in a lot of ways where people are, are looking around and saying, you know, like, and, and especially with students, I actually used to teach a couple of students virtually, um, back in 2016, 2017. And I I had a somewhat similar experience where I felt like I could be a little bit more, um, camera resolution was a little bit of an issue at the time, but you can be a little bit more like up, up in the face and, and zooming in on things and checking in on these details. And because there's such an active piece to it where you have to ask the student, can you do this? Can you move the camera here? Can you show me your hand? There's more of a, almost more of an awareness on their end of having to think about these things. And so, yeah, there are, there are some benefits, but I, I never quite figured out how to do rhythm <laughs> with the lag. It was, it was tough. I would have them play a metronome so I could tell if it was the internet or them. That's but, what I do too. Yeah. I, it's, it's like, you know, I, 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 I do the, I do the, have them do the, do the metronome, but I also um, have them do voice, voice memo, record it and send it to me. Oh, that's um, smart. You know, that's that's like this is your in between assignment, which creates yeah. more work for me. But you know, I don't I don't mind it. It's like I can first of all make sure that you're still practicing, and secondly, make sure you're playing it right. Mm-hmm. And I do this with my kids at the academy too. You know, it's like if they have a if they have a, a recording due, um, or if if they have an audition coming up or something like that. I'm like, you know, just because I'm this isn't teaching hours. These aren't the hours that I'm working for the school district. Doesn't mean you can't send me a recording. I'll listen to it, make some notes and email you back. Right. So, so, I mean, you know, technology is great. Yeah. Yeah. And I think as you know, I'm a little jealous of the kids these days because, you know, um, even when I I was in high school in the early two thousands and it wasn't so easy to just make a recording of yourself. It was, it was a lot more of a, you know, you had to buy a cassette tape and put it in the recorder. And if you ran out of tape, it was, it was a whole scene, but now they just have voice memo and it's, it's so easy. So there's a lot of, uh, I'm curious to see how it, um, how that sort of accessibility informs the next generation of musicians and what they are already aware of as they get into higher levels of playing that maybe, you know, maybe that earlier generations, it was just a little bit harder to have that level of self-awareness. Yeah. That's even a just very recording. Yeah. Even just recording a video of yourself playing. I didn't, I mean, I watched myself in the mirror, but it's really hard to analyze in real time until I was in grad school. I never took a video of myself playing to actually like, look like, Oh, okay. Is my embouchure working the way that I think it does? <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. So it's kind of neat that, that kids that have that opportunity. Well, re- recording is such a great teacher. I was, yeah. Good- when I was, when I was, uh, I did my undergrad at Ball State. And when I was a sophomore in college, there were, Ball State is in Muncie, Indiana. It's like a, it's a small town, I mean, mm-hmm. medium, medium sized town, but, but within 30 miles of Muncie, there were these two state of the art recording studios. And um, they were owned by these giants in the gospel music industry. So oh, wow. 
and and you would get called for a session it was like nine to one and two to six a couple times a week so you could make some decent money wasn't it was non-union but it was some decent money and the best part about it was uh, I got to play with my teacher so so and I had not played the horn all that long but he was like you know he saw something in me and he was like yeah, I want you to come do these recording sessions. I think you'll enjoy yourself and you'll learn a lot. Yeah. So we would go in and play, we would play a track. And, you know, I learned that if you mess up, you got to raise your hand and say, you know, that was me. And right. everybody has to go back. And so it really helps with your accuracy. But, mm-hmm. but the, the, the best part about this was that not the very best, because the best part is playing with my teacher. But one of the coolest things was the fact that as soon as you did the track, you could go back into the control room and listen. So this and listening, even though I, I couldn't see myself right. uh, playing, but I could hear, I could hear things in my playing and recording is the best teacher. It's just yeah. such a great teacher because you can hear if you're writing that pitch just a little tiny bit high, or if your articulations aren't just right, or if you're not matching style correctly and you better fix it really <laughs> fast. Right, so, right. So, yeah. So, I mean, I think I think it will influence students, future generations of musicians, because I think I think there are going to be I mean, I make all of my kids record all the mm-hmm. time because and, and they all hate it. It's the same concept as when you're a kid and somebody makes you record your voice for the first time. You're like, oh, yuck, I sound like that. Mm-hmm. We have that same thing as musicians where we're like, oh, my gosh, tell me I don't sound like that. Right. Um, but but you get used to it and and without exception every single one of my students is like they're now into it now yeah, I heard something the other day when I was recording that Galet prelude that that really bugged me why didn't you tell me I did blah 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 oh so yeah that's cool it, yeah it is cool so that they're listening with that level of analysis and are like hey wait a second what about this mm-hmm. that's yeah. that's really awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. Um, it'll be, it'll definitely be interesting to see, to see how that goes as you're teaching. Do you find, um, do you find now are your students more engaged in some ways because they're having to do these recording projects than maybe they were previously? I, I think it's a combination of, I think that the recording projects do definitely engage them more and make them more, take a little bit more personal responsibility. Yeah. Um, but I think they're also more engaged because, um, I think like all of us, I think it's a great coping mechanism through this. Yeah. They're, they're, they're finding that, that there's so much right now that's out of our control. Yeah. But, you know, here's something that might also be a little bit out of your control, but you can learn to control more and more of it if you just want to put the time into it. Right. And what other what other venture can you so tangibly feel what you know the, the cause and effect? What you put into it is is kind of what you get out of it. You can just start to see that progress. And I think I think these kids are, you know, I mean, it, it you as as you know, teaching as well. It, it weeds them out. The ones who want to put the time in will put the time in, and the other ones yeah. just sort of melt away you know right they quit right but but i'm i'm finding i'm finding my my students are are really pretty darn engaged which is is good that's cool and to have so many to have 14 15 i mean that's 
they're not all every week. You know, they're, 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 I've got like five or six that are every week, but most of them do like every other week. Yeah. Because it's it's a little bit too much. And so it, it, unless they've got something coming up that they need extra help with. Right, right. Then you get the panic emails of, I have an audition next week. Can we have three lessons right. between now and then? Yeah. This is <laughs> like this tape this tape is due next Thursday. Can we have three lessons this week? Right. Oh. <laughs> You're like, honey, no, it's not gonna help. No, it is not. That's too funny. Yeah. Um Cool. So I guess my, my last question here, I know we've kind of, we've kind of gone off on a few different in, in a few different directions, but I just, this has been really a great conversation. Um, as far as, so we've talked about how you moved into PR through kind of through your music career. Um, and then that has sort of opened doors along the way into these other ventures that you've done in marketing and public relations, communications field. Um, do you have any advice for musicians who are considering what secondary career field they might want to move into and, and how they might go about thinking about making that decision? It's a very good question. Um, I, I, I think the best advice I could give anyone is to be flexible, be nimble. If you have, if you have something that you're interested in. For me, it was, it was obviously, you know, writing and communications and things like that. Um, find opportunities that to just sort of, you know, just keep your foot in that door and see where they lead. You know, it's, it's, as you know, too, um, in the not so distant past, it used to be a stigma there was a stigma attached to having a day gig, right? Right. Or having another thing that you did. There were people I know I have friends in LA who were working second and or third careers while they were working in studios and things like that. And they did not want anyone to know that they were doing that stuff. It's yeah. not like that anymore. And it's, and I think it was like that a lot in New York as well. Yeah. Um, but, but, but people, people would look down their nose at you a little bit. I was never like that. I, I, I always thought, you know, Hey, if there's something else I can do, I'm going to, I'm going to explore it. Just keep your priorities straight and know that, I mean, if, if music is, is your life, I mean, if I could live without it, I would probably, but I can't, I can't. So, so, but respect what you do as far as, as far as your craft and your, your art. Um, But, but don't, close your eyes to other opportunities and things that interest you and and things that are also it's possible to have more than one passion yeah you know but it's 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 how you it's how you treat that how you acknowledge it how you respect it and how you nurture it so just be flexible be nimble in everything that you do and don't spread yourself too thin but if you if there's another direction you want to go 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 in into you know find a way you, 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 cause you can, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think now more than ever, it's the stigma is, is melting away because of everything that's gone on. I mean, we're all, everybody is having to find a secondary thing to do. If, if performing was the only thing that you were, that you may have been doing, um, it, it's, there's just not a lot happening right now. And so, yeah, I mean, that's, I think that's, that's really great advice. Um, that you can have 
more than one passion and that you can be interested in more than one thing to pursue. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good advice. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. Thank you for having me. Yeah.